This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. On this program, we ask a poet to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then they read one of their own poems from the magazine. Today, my guest is Sandra Cisneros, who is the recipient of a 2022 Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize, a National Medal of Arts, the Ford Foundation's Art of Change Fellowship, and the Penn Nabokov Award for Achievement in International Literature. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Hey, I'm surprised. I'm the most astonished. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, not at all. I'm really excited to hear uh, your poem and this first poem, which you've selected to read, which is Shelter by Jose Antonio Rodriguez. What drew you to this particular poem? Well, it's by a Mexican. That's one. Someone from the border. Jose Antonio was born in Mexico and is a citizen of the United States and has an incredible collection of poetry that tells the story of people who grew up on both sides of the border. So first, it's someone who's writing about something I care about, border issues. Absolutely. And I love this poem. Let's hear it. Um, this is Sandra Cisneros reading Shelter by Jose Antonio Rodriguez. Shelter. Don't misunderstand me. I love a good poem, like half my Facebook friends, one that transports you to a corner of the soul you didn't know was there because you couldn't find the precise metaphor, even if you felt it. Like that time my parents saw a local news story of an older woman asking for help with an ailing husband, and I volunteered to drive them to the address on screen, a neighborhood I'd never driven through, though it looked familiar with its usual poverty. A few leaning boards called a house, and inside the woman from the news in half-light, thanking us for the comforters in our hands and pointing to a fold-out chair we could place them before introducing us to her husband, a scraggly beard beneath a crinkled blanket on a cot right there in what would have been the living room, groaning in the muted manner of those who know this is as good as it'll get the woman's non-stop small talk about so it is, life's a struggle, and please stay a while, and take a seat, as if we were long-missed relatives. All this in Spanish, 
Though I translate it here because I want to reach the widest audience and not burden the monolingual English reader when they've already gifted me their time by reading this, which I'll call a poem, one that my parents can't read, as they only speak Spanish with that poor Mexican lilt of apology which kept them from interrupting the woman, a Spanish I've kept but rarely used though I did that moment when I kept telling my mother, we have to go, with an almost impolite urgency, because I couldn't bear one more minute in that near replica of the room of my childhood. Even as the woman said, he seems to be in such a hurry, and my mother smiled, making excuses as we turned to leave, while I bemoaned my parents' passive politeness, so common in the Mexican in America, though by then I was already a grad student in upstate New York and down in South Texas for the winter break between semesters of reading Adichie and Alexi and risking words together to find something like the point of this, some search for the reason for the speaker's love of poems that pool of the written word as artifact, as a kind of tool against the sometimes overwhelming sadness about all of it, including the fact that some of us, it seems, will never be allowed the time and energy to sit with a poem like them in that illusion of shelter, though perhaps they were closer to poetry's pursuit that edge of oblivion where words begin becoming insufficient. The woman with her frantic speech beseeching us and the man extending his bony hand out as if from the cot itself, the tremor of it trying to say something that sounded like a greeting, that sounded like a plea. That was Shelter by Jose Antonio Rodriguez, which was published in the April 6th, 2020 issue of The New Yorker. I was struck by your terrific reading and and that sense of the voice, which is so much alive in the poem. There's so much spokenness in the poem, but it's also a poem about writing itself. Don't misunderstand me. I love a good poem. You know, it starts off with this and then halfway through it also reconnects to that idea. Is poetry able to capture this moment, but also is poetry familiar to the figures in the poem? Um, it's a really striking use of of that kind of questioning. And I wonder how you thought about that. Why do you think the poem works uh, so well at helping us think about poetry's place? Well, for me, poetry is always about uh, saying those things that we don't have any words for. Like that's our profession to come in and uh, create language for the ineffable, and especially a, a writer like Jose Antonio Rodriguez, who lives on the border, who was born on the border, you're always wandering the border between languages. The two places were the English and the Spanish and the legacy of the indigenous languages, you know, what doesn't exist, where they don't quite overlap. Those interstices are fascinating, a loamy land for any writer, don't you think? I know for me... Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and especially he's not just wandering about borders of language. He's also bordering on class and the borders of places of 
familiarity, the intimacy of coming into someone's home as, as the poem takes us into this living room. And uh, also the beautiful lilt of apology of people who come from the Mexican-American culture stepping into a home. I know what that feels like, you know, from both when someone comes in and when you are the intruder. And he's the translator of all of this happening at so many different levels. It's, it's such a beautiful poem. I, I am uh, so honored to throw rose petals in its path. <laughs> Well, and I think translation is exactly right, because there's the, I think, somewhat funny um, aside, all this in Spanish, though I translate it here because I want to reach the widest audience and not burden the monolingual English reader when they've already gifted me their time by reading this. That lilt of apology. He's inherited <laughs> that same lilt of apology. Sorry to be bugging you with my poem. <laughs> But <laughs> <laughs> well, but I also think there's something about that translation, like you said. Do you think there's that burden of translation he's working out, or is it is it a pleasure? Is it a mixed bag? How do you see translation in this poem, but also maybe in poetry more generally? Well, you know, uh, coming from a home uh, and a neighborhood like Jose's, you know, this very humble house. And being a word worker like Jose, I do feel a foreigner in my own family. Uh, mm. Sometimes as a poet, you know, the work that we do, our profession, hammering out words for situations that don't have words and being among people who need shelter, need blankets. They don't sure. want you writing a poem. You know, give me some food for my belly, please. And here <laughs> here we are. You know, I, I do understand this poem so much and the uh embarrassment and an inadequacy, perhaps, that one feels stepping into situations where people have such basic needs. And uh, here we are, uh, professional word workers. And even with all of the words we have on hand in English and in Spanish and in other languages, there, there aren't enough to communicate moments of such poignancy as this one. Well, I, I couldn't agree more um, about sort of the limits of language, which the poem also mentions. It, it talks about that edge of oblivion where words begin becoming insufficient. Not, it, they aren't quite insufficient, but I love that begin becoming. What a beautiful phrase. I wonder about the title there, Shelter. How do you read the title now? I mean, it starts in a certain way and it ends in another. I, I wonder how Shelter echoes for you. Hmm, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about the title. I think at this point, when you literally think of the story and here are people that are looking for basics, a shelter, a blanket, they're having a very hard time. And the family of the speakers also are not wealthy people. But as often happens, it's people who have nothing that give the most because they sure. understand what it is not to have. They, they can understand what it is to be in need because they are mm -hmm. there, they've been there. And then I think also maybe Jose Antonio is talking also about language and how words shelter us too and maybe also um, keep us apart as well, mm. shelter us from seeing things the way we ought to. You know, he's almost like a newscaster coming in here and <laughs> saying, let me show you what's happening. And he has that awkwardness of being that person in between. You know, he, mm -hmm. he feels he's imposing on this very private and heartbreaking uh, family. And uh, it, it, it's, it's an awkward moment, and yet it's a graceful poem. 
I love that idea because I'm struck that shelter is both a, a noun, a thing we have or wish for, and also a verb. You know, it's something we do, or maybe it's also, as you said, sheltering you from the truth. I mean, there's a way in which he talks about having to go with an almost impolite urgency because I couldn't bear one more minute in that near replica of the room of my childhood. It's not the distance that uh, upsets him, it's the closeness. And I, I think that's really powerful in the speaker's acknowledgement of that. But there's also that kind of, I don't know, distance that comes from closeness, um, which is very different than I, I've never seen this. I have no idea about it. It's just, you know, touristy. It's the opposite. I know it's, it's so too familiar. Much. I don't want to be reminded of this place of my past. That's what he's saying. No? Yeah, no, I think so. Um, I wonder about that. He talks about risking words. Um, there's many risks in this poem, but I wonder how you think about risk in a poem. Uh, and it's something I want to talk about when you talk about your poems. But, you know, I feel like um, he's willing to risk a lot of things, including this overwhelming sadness, almost consuming memory, you know, and a, a, almost a nostalgia, but also a kind of the opposite of nostalgia, rejection of the past, which we kind of mentioned. I, I'm kind of interested in that that balance that the poem achieves. Um, and he calls it the illusion of shelter but then also that somehow they're also closer to poetry's pursuit. I'm just curious about that balancing act that the poem does, which I think is predicated on risk. Well, you know, um, for someone who comes from the working class, once we have language, it uh, allows us to travel away from our home and uh, it divorces us from our family. And I think that's what's interesting and intriguing to me about this poem. You know, he's both uh, someone who can speak the language uh, emotional, the emotional language, but he also has traveled away, and and you know he's like a, a interloper in the mm. scene. Don't you feel there's an interloper, and he's also behaving like some uh, foreigner by saying we gotta right. go. <laughs> you know, don't you know yeah, you're supposed Mexican? to sit down? You're for supposed a to sit down. You're supposed to chat like if you were visitors, and that's the polite Mexican thing to do. And he's been educated to a point where he doesn't know that anymore. He's been miseducated, mm. you know. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a curious thing, and it, that you know, and it happens to us, you know, when we become so miseducated with our degrees that we forgot, you know, how our mamas raised us. That's what's happening mm -hmm. here, no? Well, I think so, but also I think there's a way in which he's so self-aware of it; he can't stop thinking about it. You know, it's less that he's forgotten himself. It's like he can't get away from himself, which I think is slightly different than, you know, you've lost yourself. You've you've lost touch with the people. It's almost more like, oh, my God, this is too close to home for me and almost there. But for the grace of God kind of saying, um, but there's something also about this gentleman um, who is at the end of the poem extending his bony hand out as if from the cot itself you know it's almost like the thing is reaching out the tremor of it trying to say something that sounded like a greeting that sounded like a plea that greeting and that plea it seems to me that's what he's saying they're the poles of poetry in some sense yeah or at least this poetry uh, i wonder about that you know i always feel that we're kind of like nuns or monks in our monasteries when we write and we have to transform all these experiences into illumination. That that's our job. 
And we can't do it without going out into the world. And we do it for people who cannot, for the man who is stuck on that cot and is stuck between a greeting and a plea, and the mother and father who are trying to be polite, and the woman who has to graciously receive them in her home and act as if nothing's wrong. And, you know, it's our job to uh, retreat and transform all of this into poetry. But I feel um, such a disconnect, you know, weaving all these words into poetry and poetry sometimes not being able to reach the very people we're writing for. I was saying yesterday when I was at Politics and Prose that we need to have poems performed, uh, declamados on megaphones, the same way that the collector of old metals in Mexico goes through the street yelling, microwaves, refrigerators, any old metal. You know, we need to be uh, declamando poetry, declaiming it. It should be in the open air on those megaphones through the streets or on the boxes of cereal or on coffee cups and especially on the backs of T-shirts because I get so tired waiting in line. I want to read something good instead of whatever, you know, catchy, obnoxious phrases like that. I want to see poetry everywhere because we need it so badly right now in this time of fake news and doubts and especially uh, fears and uh, uh, opposing sides where people aren't listening. We need poetry now because poetry is medicine and poetry uh, heals us and poetry saves and transforms us. And we need poets more than politicians. I'm sorry, because I feel so frustrated with the politicians and how how polarized we are with politicians. But poetry is about speaking truth. We need it every day and every moment. So I, I thank you for inviting me to to give my sermon. <laughs> Beautifully said. Give, give my dos centavos here. <laughs> I love that, the claiming. Now, in our August 22nd, 2022 issue, the New Yorker published your poem, Tea Dance, Provincetown, 1982, which we will hear you read momentarily. Did you want to tell us anything about the poem before we hear it? Anything listeners should know? Well, it's a poem that I wrote recently. And that came out in one push. Usually when I write a poem, it takes me years and years. I put it away. I never know if it's done. And and this one was done fairly rapidly. And it was just a memory because I, I had some photographs taken when I was on the beach learning how to be a woman without shame. And I was remembering those photographs on that afternoon. And uh, the poem just came out in one moment. I, I, I didn't expect it to take me to its ending. I was just writing from... Uh, a memory of that year that I had money in my pocket, thanks to a National Endowment to the Arts grant. I was writing this little book called House on Mongo Street that I needed to finish. And I had a one-way ticket in my pocket to go from New York to Greece. And that's, that's all I knew that summer. This is Sandra Cisneros reading her poem, Tea Dance, Provincetown, 1982. Tea Dance, Provincetown, 1982. At the boy bar, no one danced with me. I danced with everyone. The entire room, every song. That's what was so great about the boy bars then. The room vibrated, shook, convulsed in one collective zoological frenzy. Truthfully, 
I was the only woman there. Who cared? At the boat slip, I was welcomed. The girl bar down the street, dull as brillo. But the tea dances shimmied, miraculous as mercury. Acrid stink of sweat and chlorine tang of semen. Slippery male energy, something akin to watching horses fighting, something exciting. My lover, the final summer he was by, introduced me to the teas, often hovered out of sight, distracted by poolside beauties, while I danced content, innocent with the room of men. He was a skittish kite, that one. Kites swerve and swoop and whoop. Only a matter of time, I knew. Apropos, I called him my little piece of string. And that's what kites leave you with in the end. There was an expiration date to summer. Understood. That season, I was experimenting to be the woman I wanted to be taught myself to sun topless at the gay beach where sunbathers shouted, Ranger, a relayed warning announcing authority en route on horseback, coming to inspect if we were clothed, else find $50 sans bottom, 100 topless, 50 a tit, I joked. It was easy to be half naked at a gay beach. Men didn't bother to look. I wasn't training to be a woman without shame. Not a shameless woman, una sinvergüenza, but una sinvergüenza, glorious in her skin, flesh akin to pride. I shed that summer not only bikini top, but guilt driven Eve and self-immolating Fatima, was practicing for my Minoan days ahead. Medusa hair and breasts spectacular as Nike of Samothrace welcoming the salty wind. Yes, I was a lovely thing then. I can say this with impunity. At 28, she was a woman unrelated to me. I could tell stories, have so many to tell, and none to tell them to except the page, my faithful confessor. Lover and I feuded one night when he wouldn't come home with me. His secret? Her peace. Laughable in retrospect, considering the plague was already decimating dances across the globe. But that was before we knew it as the plague. We were all on the run in 82, jumping to Laura Bronigan's Gloria, the summer's theme song, beat thumping in our blood, drinks sweeter than bodies convulsing on the floor. That was Tea Dance, Provincetown, 1982 by Sandra Cisneros. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. 
there's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. So that was terrific to hear. Um, This is from your new book, Woman Without Shame, whose title comes from this poem. And it's your first book in 28 years of poems, but it's also your first poetry collection ever published in Spanish. That must have been a wonderful experience. Well, you know, I live in Mexico now, and I'm not known in Mexico, though, as a writer. I'm just myself, which is kind of nice, too. Uh, But sometimes you want your poems translated because you want to share them with your friends. You want to share them with the woman who cooks for you. You want to share them with the dentist and the acupuncturist, everyone who's in your life. So I was very happy that now Liliana Valenzuela Venezuela, who's a poet in her own right, did the task of translating this book, as she has with so many of my other books. It's a beautiful translation because Liliana Valenzuela is a poet too, and only a poet can translate poetry so exquisitely, in my opinion. Well, turning to the poem itself, I mean, it's such a powerful poem. I remember reading it for the first time and being struck by how clear-eyed it was in its memories, but also how it was really able to balance then and now both be affectionate with the younger self, but also play with it and and tease it almost a little bit. And then also uh, honor this scene, um, which as the end of the poem sort of notes is kind of fleeting. Uh, It's a particular moment, uh, both in the speaker's life, but also in the life of Provincetown and the life of these gay and bisexual men. How do you um, see that magic that you worked of balancing the past and the present or the looking back and the zooming ahead? Well, you know, uh, I'm 67 going on 68 this December. So I feel like um, there's a lovely phrase in Spanish Uh, When we get older, we say, a a estas alturas, at these heights, is what we say in Spanish. And I feel, a estas alturas, I can see things clearer. I've always said, the farther away you are from a story, the clearer you can see it, because you can see yourself. And I feel that way about my life, that I can write about things now when I was in my 20s, in a way I could not when I was in my 20s. So I'm enjoying the... uh, the perspective of uh, seeing my life from these heights. And do you feel like that's true in the book as a whole? Uh, are you looking back? Is, is that what's happening? Or is the woman without shame then, you know, the 1982 moment? Or is it that, as you say in the poem, I was experimenting to be the woman I wanted to be? Well, I'm still experimenting. I'm a work in progress. I'm an apprentice human being still. You know, just before we came on, I was writing a poem. And one of the lines is, you know, ojalá I learn how to say I love you without being ashamed. I'm still ashamed about saying I love you. It's scary because we didn't say I love you in my family. So I feel I'm still working on becoming the human being I want to be and becoming the poet I want to be. And poetry is helping me. My life is helping the poetry and poetry is helping me to be the the human being I want to write. So I'm still at it. I hope like Hokusai that when I'm in my 77th year, I can say, oh, if only I could live a few years more, then I would call myself an artist. So, you know, I look at mountains and they took a long time to become mountains and become so beautiful. So I'm not doing so bad, you know. (laughs) You're doing great. Thanks. Uh, 
back and you capture that in this poem, the joy of the dances, of the tea dances, the beach life, the interior life, both inside and also inside um, the speaker. I'm curious about that shift in the poem toward the end where there's all these figures from myth and history and religion, Eve, Fatima, Minoan days, Nike of Samothrace. I, I love that part of the poem. How do you think that myth informs this life? Well, you know, uh, you have to remember when I was uh, a woman, young woman from the barrio, I didn't know how to become a writer except looking at people who were basically uh, men behaving badly, you know, and they were traveling and doing things. And, you know, and I thought, oh, that's how you become a writer. You've got to behave badly and you have to travel. And, you know, where was I going to get the money to do that? And no one could help me in the barrio. So when I got my first NEA, I bought a a one-way ticket. And I really wanted to go to Patagonia and travel back home, but I was too frightened I mean, I'd never been to Indiana alone. How was I going to get to Patagonia alone? So I thought, oh, I better go somewhere where they're used to seeing women traveling alone. But I I had a friend who was going to go to visit her parents in Athens, and we would travel part of the way together. So that that helped. And that's why all of those Greek images were coming Uh up in the poem. I was on my way to Greece. And I I knew that I had this wild Medusa hair. I was living in a very foreign place called Provincetown. It was like so white. I'd never seen anything like it. I thought, oh, my, I think I'm the brownest person here. And it was a little odd. But on the other hand, I was also a straight woman. That also made me feel odd, involved with a bi man who was, in other words, like, you know, he was my escort into this different mundo that I'd never seen before. And I felt awkward being there. I felt like a tourist, but I also felt very free. I felt like the gay men were my people. And, you know, as a feminist Mexican woman, you know, I've always felt at home with gay men. So this community was welcoming and uh, they liked me and they liked my free spirit and they made me feel glamorous because they were glamorous, you know, so we admired each other. And it made me start thinking in ways outside of the box when I was living there. Maybe I should think about women. You know, women are beautiful too. Have I been living in this kind of box of just hetero relationships? You know, I just questioned everything. And uh, it was a beautiful summer. I was supposed to finish House on Mongo Street, but I was too busy dancing at the tea dances every afternoon. (laughs) So I didn't finish. And I had to take the book with me to Greece. But I had a hell of a summer And I met lots of people and I learned about myself. And I'm grateful for what Provincetown gave me and what the gay community gave and gives me because I still feel very, very affiliated with gay men. Well, I think you really capture that community in that sense of, as you said, you feel like a tourist, but also belonging. You know, I think that's really special in the poem. And there's also that sense of becoming a writer, uh, which you mentioned. And the speaker says, I could tell stories, have so many to tell and none to tell them to except the page, my faithful confessor. Is that how you view the page in this Yeah, because I don't have children. And when I came back from that trip, it was my first big trip alone. I was, you know, much older than than when other people make their European trek because I was working class. I was 28 years old and came back when I was practically 30. And I had so many adventures and 
anecdotes and people I'd met. I wanted to share it. But when you come back from a trip like that in my family, nobody wants to listen. I don't have children. <laughs> I don't have kids. So who are you going to tell these things to? I don't have grandchildren. I have no one who wants to hear me. In the old times, we would come back with photos or uh uh, slideshow, slideshow, films of our my summer, how I spent my summer. <laughs> but nobody wanted to hear about my summer, so I thought, oh well, I guess, I guess I'll write it down. <laughs> Is this something you think you could have written about earlier? You said the distance, the heights, yeah, helped. the heights help because you know when it's happening, there's so many things happening, but you don't see yourself clearly. I didn't see myself the way that I see myself now, uh, trying so hard to live like a white woman, trying to live like a feminist woman. But I was a working class woman with, you know, indigenous roots. And so there were a lot of uh, inhibitions, a lot of shame that I had to overcome. And, you know, and I inherited a lot of things by, by my culture, by my religion. So I had to shed more than my bikini top through the years. Tell me, did you return with a house on Mango Street? Was that part of your returning home? You you didn't have slideshow, but you had a, a novel. Well, yes, I had this little book that you know took a long time for my family to read. <laughs> but I I went to the island where Leonard Cohen had lived, Idra, and I finished my book in Idra. And I was just thinking today as I was braiding my hair, oh, Leonard Cohen, you know, I went there thinking, where did Leonard Cohen live? Where is Leonard Cohen? And I wonder if people go to Idra now asking, where did Sandra Cisneros live? I hope I'm part of the legacy of that beautiful island. I haven't been back in mm, since like the early 90s. I wrote an introduction to a loose woman from Idra. I haven't been back since. I'm kind of afraid to go back because it's kind of like when you go visit some old boyfriend from the past, maybe it's better to remember things the way they were. Sure, sure. Well, and you mentioned Loose Woman. You have these great titles of your previous books of poems, Loose Woman, My Wicked, Wicked Ways, Bad Boys. I, I sense a theme. Well, you know, it's that Catholicism. What can I say? You know, everything is like good and evil. You got to get over that. But on the other hand, it's good to have good and evil because then when you're doing evil, wicked things, it's so delicious, no? Yeah, I mean, you know, you've convinced me both with your poems <laughs> and your titles. Well, um, I just hope that people will realize you can be sexy at 67 because I still feel sexy and I still have appetite for sex. Be careful, young boys out there. You know, there's just a lot of things that, you know, I want to break this idea of ageism as if we don't have mm -hmm. desire, we don't have sex, you know, maybe we don't have sex as much as we used to, but we still do and we still need love and we still need warmth and we still experience uh, uh, memories in ways that we didn't when we were younger. We examine things more carefully. So I really like being my age. I would never want to be 20 something again. It was painful time. I think it's painful for women in their 20s because they feel obligated to behave a certain way and to get married or have children or to do all the things that their country and culture and, and family want them to do. And I think when you get older, you start thinking about what you want and you don't give a damn so much about the Kediran, what they will say. Well put. Um, my last question is just about poetry versus prose and sort of when do you know as a, a writer... Or do you know 
when something is going to come out as a poem or when it's going to come out as prose or is it you know case by case how do how do you approach it or is it something a bit more surprising even to you well, you know what, Kevin? I don't know in the beginning. I have to admit, I don't. I kind of think I know, but a lot of things have fooled me and have started, you know, maybe I thought they were a poem and they turned into prose. And I, I let the thing decide itself what it wants to be. But I write in between, you know, I write poetry that reads like story and I write stories that read like poetry. I, I like that in between place. And I like the words to decide for themselves, you know, but I, I don't know in the beginning, but I do know you, you have to stalk a poem by the time you've caught the tail and it takes you and you're in that uplift and that upwind that it takes you, then you, then I know when it takes me somewhere I didn't expect to go and shines a light on me that isn't always flattering. That's how I know it's poetry. And when it sings, you know, it's got to sing for me. You know, prose is a little bit different. You know how, what it is? And I've used this metaphor before. It's like chasing a kite. And when you catch the string and it takes you off the ground, that's how you know it's a poem. And I love how you have that kite metaphor in this very poem. So uh, it brings us full circle. That's wonderful. <laughs> That's funny. I did call him my little piece of string. <laughs> I've always been intuitive. <laughs> well, Sandra, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Tea Dance Provincetown, 1982 by Sandra Cisneros, as well as Jose Antonio Rodriguez's Shelter, can be found on newyorker.com. Jose Antonio Rodriguez's most recent book is This American Autopsy. Sandra Cisneros's latest poetry collection is Woman Without Shame. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses with help from Hannah Eisenman. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.